0: Listening to the Issues on Appeal Podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Diker.
1: Thanks for joining me for episode 40: A Mere Footnote. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. This episode is a deep dive into footnotes. If you're an appellate geek, you know this is a slightly controversial topic. Not quite as divisive as two spaces after a period, but still. I want to talk a little bit about footnotes and their history and their application, and then I'm going to bring in a few appellate specialists to talk about footnote use and philosophy and legal writing. Sarah Lalu of the Banker Lopez-Gasler firm, and Chris Donovan from Retzel and Andrus. Merriam-Webster defines a footnote as a note of reference, explanation, or comment, usually placed below the text on a printed page. Footnotes, of course, are very similar to endnotes, which are placed at the end of an article, a chapter, or a document. End notes are a little less common, but can be found in articles in the Florida Bar Journal, as an example. Long explanations or extraneous information can be difficult for readers to trudge through when they occur in the middle of a paper or even in the middle of a paragraph or a passage, or sometimes in the middle of a sentence. Providing certain information can be necessary, but doing so in the main text can disrupt the flow of the writing. That's why footnotes can be so useful. They allow authors to provide the required information without disrupting the flow of ideas. Footnotes can be a citation to authority, they can be parenthetical type thoughts, background information, guides for the reader, and much more. Now, footnotes are generally indicated by superscript numbers following the relevant word, text, or sentence. While everybody knows what a footnote generally looks like, there are some differences I see in the way people actually implement the footnote. Both APA and MLA styles, though, agree that the superscript numbers are placed outside of any punctuation that might be present. That is, after the period, if the note is at the end of a sentence, or after a comma if the note is at the end of a clause. Now going back in time just a little bit, my first recollection of dealing with footnotes is in my high school English class, and specifically learning how to do footnotes on an electric typewriter. Back then, you had to manually turn the platen or the roller on the typewriter down a half a line, type the number that you wanted to simulate a superscript, then you had to remember to leave enough space at the bottom of the page to actually type in the footnote. It wasn't easy. If you misjudged the space, you had to retype. Footnotes were seldom worth the work, unless it was something that was just required for the assignment. Now, thankfully, computers and word processors have taken almost all the hassle out of generating footnotes. But still, even with the technical hurdles aside, There are mixed feelings about footnotes among writers and readers generally. I tend to agree with David Foster Wallace, an American author and English professor who said about footnotes, I think the only thing for me, the tricky thing with footnotes, is that they are an irritant and they require a little extra work. So they either have to be really germane or they have to be kind of fun to read. I think this is fair. A footnote is a little distracting It's a little bit of work, so it should be worth it. Other commentators are a little bit more negative. English playwright Noel Coward has a famous and very slightly bawdy quip. He said, Having to read a footnote resembles having to go downstairs to answer the door while in the midst of making love. Obviously, he sees footnotes as inopportune and unwelcome interruptions. To me, that's... A little bit sad, or at least a little bit pessimistic. Chuck Zerbe, author of The Devil's Details A History of Footnotes, had a more optimistic view. In replying specifically to Coward's quip, he said The footnote is just likely to bring to the door a welcome visitor, perhaps handsome or pretty, sometimes garrulous, but often pleasantly sociable. Many a somnolent reader has metaphorically hugged such a visitor and hoped many more would come to the door. Zerby went on to say, A footnote is like a blind date, threatening and exciting, dreary occasionally, but often entertaining, and a footnote does not require or expect a long-term commitment. Joining me now are two board-certified appellate specialists, Sarah Lalu Amin of the Banker Lopez-Gasler firm and Chris Donovan from Retzel and Andrus. Uh, Sarah thanks for joining the podcast again.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And Chris uh, thanks uh, for joining yet again yourself. Thank you. Now footnotes are commonly used in law review articles and legal encyclopedias and uh, articles in the Florida Bar Journal that sort of thing but but let's face it well while, while we do that kind of stuff that's not our bread and butter uh, I really want to talk about appellate brief writing in particular It may spill over into some of these other topics, but really we're going to focus on appellate briefs for the most part. Um, Sarah, what is your approach to using footnotes and appellate briefs?
2: Well, my approach is um, limited somewhat by kind of what we've been taught to do in the appellate courts in Florida. And that's largely based on how the appellate courts have historically kind of worked in terms of how they process our briefs. And review our brief. And so, one thing, particularly in um, the location where we all practice within the second DCA, um, they had a procedure um, that started a while back. And um, to my knowledge, they're still using this procedure. And they still on their website, you can see they actively, um, strongly discourage footnotes. And the reason for that historically has been when they take the briefs, they merge them together. Sometimes the footnotes don't necessarily make the cut. And so um, the way that we've been trained is really if it's not, um, if it's essential, if you want the court to definitely consider that material, you don't want to put it in a footnote.
0: Yeah.
1: And I will tell you, I'm going to link in the show notes to the second DCA practice preferences, which is a document that the court um, has put together and updates from time to time. And you're right, uh, for the second DCA, they have a section in that document that says footnotes are strongly discouraged. And they say, um, be extremely sparing with the use of footnotes in briefs. Uh, And of course they say, under no circumstances should you use footnotes to exceed the, you know, as a device to exceed page limits. But but they're definitely, you know, expressly discouraging footnotes. Um, I'm not aware of, other DCAs taking such a an express and direct <laughs> position against footnotes. But but certainly the the three of us do a lot of work in the second DCA and it and is definitely discouraged.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's um and 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 the what they what they mentioned there on the website is another issue that comes up because you can try to pack information into a footnote and typically you know your brief is going to be double spaced. And this is the case also um, the federal rules have the same type of caution. You know, don't, um, y- you may have footnotes, but they are going to count toward your word count. So you really um, can't use footnotes to try to get around the, you know, confines that the rules place on you. And if it's clear that you're trying to do that, um, the the court won't appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. And, you know, anytime you're trying to sort of, uh, cutesy your way around the rules <laughs> nobody's gonna appreciate that very much chris so uh, you and i have talked about footnotes in the past and some of these on some of our episodes i know that you you um maybe have more of an affinity for footnotes uh, than others do uh, at least when they're when they're allowed what's what's your general take on footnotes in appellate briefs
0: so you know I, I agree with what sarah said in terms of our our limitations particularly where we predominantly practice in the second which then of course just spills over whenever i do a brief for other other uh, courts because i'm sort of ch- trained myself not to include them necessarily but if i was working from a clean slate i would probably take uh i would probably look at the, this from two different theories either what to do with citations mm-hmm. which I would put in footnotes like Brian Garner does and then everything else, uh, which means like any sort of side discussions, et cetera, I would still very much limit, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily be quite as restricting as uh, uh, the second DCA's strongly discouraging footnotes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But before we leave the second DCA and I want to come back to Garner in a minute, one of the things that makes second DCA also different than other courts is their staff attorneys put together a compilation brief. Um, they are careful not to call it a summary because they include everything from the underlying briefs. But I'm told that one of the things they do when they put together this compilation, they reorder the arguments and that sort of thing. And they actually take the footnotes and move them up into the main text. So one of the goals uh, I was talking about earlier, footnotes is to prevent you know, readers from you know, having to take a detour, you know, in, in the middle of a thought or paragraph or sentence uh, to some extraneous information to make the, the work, the reading uh, flow better. Uh, that's defeated uh, if the court uh, moves your footnotes into the main text anyway. So uh, that that's a problem that's specific to the second DCA, but you had mentioned Brian Garner and Brian Garner is known for, he's a, He's described as one of the leading lexicographers, uh, legal lexicographers of our time. Uh, certainly, he's a prolific author, and he he tours a lot and speaks. And he has very pointed opinions about footnotes, and uh, that he he loves using footnotes for citations, for citations to cases and statutes. And uh, can you talk about that a little bit about sort of his his general approach?
0: Sure, as I understand his general approach, at least from several of his books. Um, and attending one of his uh, s- seminars, that he actually doesn't think anything should be in a footnote except for citations. He, he describes the citation at the end of a sentence in the text, or or even worse, in the middle of the text, uh, as like speed bumps along the way. Um, I, I think I, I'll play off of, uh, uh, of your introduction and, and what uh, Noel Coward had said, that in reality, and when, when you're forced to read speed, or when you're forced to read uh, uh, citations in a legal document, that's almost like interrupting your lovemaking to go make a phone call. You, you lose the flow of the analysis by having a citation, or worse, three or four citations with parentheticals, and so that's why he, his view is always put them. In the, in the uh in the footnotes uh because if if they're important enough to talk about you'll still include some reference to like a key case, you know maybe you'll refer to the Applegate case, which everybody in Florida who does appeals knows oh well that's you you know they didn't include a transcript well, then you could just drop a little footnote that puts the full citation for anybody who may not necessarily know what the Applegate case is, but uh, in terms of including the important stuff uh, in the text, then that that uh puts all the other stuff like 42 Southern Second 545 out of the way and and unclutters the sentences and paragraphs.
1: I remember hearing him talk about this, and ironically. Was uh, at Stetson in what is the, you know now the Second DCA courtroom uh, talking about this philosophy. So it didn't go over real great <laughs> for that audience, but he definitely You know, he makes a compelling argument. If if you were if you were not faced with you know dictates of the Second District and maybe maybe other appellate courts in Florida, I mean, would that be your preference? Do you do you, do you buy into the Garner style?
0: I do. And it would be, but I'm not sure that it has caught on enough for the judges yet, even outside of the second. Uh, and I, I just as an example, if you'll allow me to uh, to explain. So in uh, in the book, Making Your Case, uh, um, Justice Scalia, former Justice Scalia and, and Brian Gardner, they, they debate the issues of footnotes in two chapters. And at the in Scalia disagrees with Gardner in terms of whether to put the citations in the footnotes. He says that judges are uncomfortable with change and it is a sure thing that some crabby judge will dislike this one. (laughs) He he said, you should no more try to convert the court to citation free text at your client's expense than to try to convert it to colorful ties and casual Friday attire at oral argument. (laughs) So I guess the point is if I was working from a clean slate and it was a little more accepted, or I knew the judge that I was writing to, uh, um, was would would be willing would be open to it, I certainly would put it put put the citations in the in the uh, footnotes,
1: Sarah, what do you think about that uh, if if given uh, given the clean slate which which do you
0: prefer
2: you know, I certainly love a streamlined look to writing, and I can see how in everyday life and certainly in things like law review articles um, that can be easier to read but one one issue is. That when I'm reading a legal argument and you make a statement about how the law is, if I realize you're citing to a case that's maybe not even in this jurisdiction, then that changes the meaning of that legal writing to me. And so I I, I would be reading that writing and constantly looking down at the footnotes and hitting those speed bumps anyway. So um, t- to me, I think that the case citations really are part of the writing when you're talking about a brief and, um, you know, I don't see it changing anytime soon, but I, you know, it would make it for a more streamlined look um, and it would make some things perhaps easier to read. But when you're reading that real meaty legal writing, that's part of what you're processing as you're reading it.
1: Yeah, I, I tend to totally agree with you. I, I um I'm constantly, as I'm reading a legal brief, I'm analyzing, you know, as I read what, what cases uh, are being cited. Are they being Are they cases that I recognize? Are they cases that I know to be the leading cases on this point? Is there something I never heard of? How old is it? What right. court district is it cited in? So I, I agree with you. I would probably be doing a lot of the up and down too. And sometimes it wouldn't be worth it
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> to,
1: mm-hmm. to take that detour. Um, so I'm not sure that I agree with with the Brian Garner style. Um, I do think it makes total sense for you know law reviews, of course, Florida Bar Journal articles, things where you are not necessarily evaluating the strength of each position, but you're you're you know you're reading for some bigger picture. But ultimately, I guess it doesn't matter because we. It's a good philosophical discussion, but as we all agree we live in the world that we live in and footnotes um, citations and footnotes are really not an accepted thing and 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 would be, you know, probably highly objectionable in the Second District Court of Appeal in Florida. So so we, we 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 write in the world that we live in. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at www.courtsurety.com or toll free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. I suggest you take an opportunity right now, add CSBA's contact information to your own contact list so that you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency, but they're very involved in the local Florida appellate community. In fact, CSBA is a global sponsor of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. If you want to learn more about supersedious bonds, check out Episode 9 of this podcast, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious, and an in-depth discussion with CSBA President Dan Huckabay. The next time your client needs a supersedious bond... Please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about.
0: Dwayne, to, to uh, two points to uh, to Sarah's point with, and yours, which is a very valid point and certainly a concern. Brian Gardner would probably respond if I if if I could be so bold to be him for a moment. He would say that. Uh, that the writer should still write their text in a certain way that the important authorities are, are still a, a part of the text. So in other words, if you're quoting an opinion, then you should sort of begin the sentence with, you know, in the first district court of appeal, uh, in the such and such case or the Applegate case in the Supreme court, they, 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 the court said, blah, blah, blah. This way, uh, if the court needs to evaluate the, the quality of the, uh, uh um, decision then they're they're still getting it without needing to look down and of course the the contrary would be true if the person's not doing that and they're just randomly quoting something uh then the and it sounds suspicious then your credibility is going to be shot anyway whether the judge looks down and discovers that it's from pennsylvania not florida anyway <laughs> but right but i also would add that um I think that the Brian Garner way is just a, a a a little bit before its time technologically, and, and the reason why I say that is is in one of his books he kind of explains why we as a law profession actually put the 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 uh, citations in the text, and it goes to the exact point that you made in your introduction, which was that from like 1880. Until about 1975, it was extremely difficult to do that with typewriters, (laughs) to put footnotes in with typewriters. So it became steadfast in the legal profession uh, to putting them them in text. And originally, it wasn't that big of a deal because not everything that we said... Uh, in the text involved citations or, you know, required a legal citation. Uh, And certainly it didn't involve string citations necessarily. So I think, and the reason why I say it's a little bit not quite, the technology's not there is, is because if, if we can get to a point where the reader doesn't have to look down the end of the page, but he just clicks the, the, if he's reading on his iPad or her, he or she is reading on their iPad, if they click the little the little uh, uh, footnote and it just sort of brings it up or puts it off to the side, then they're never having to disrupt the going up and down. And you see that in like Wikipedia or you hover over your cursor, you hover over it and it sort of shows up off to the side. Uh, i don't know how to do that technologically maybe the technology's there i mean obviously it's there if wikipedia can do it <laughs> but in in it, for in terms of 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 the everyday lay person using word we're not there yet but if we get there then i think we'll see more and more judges uh and, and attorneys coming around
1: no that's an interesting point that i hadn't thought about it makes perfect sense that that footnotes are tied in some way to the the technology and the procedure of putting together the documents and that is clearly evolving 20 years ago, we would not have thought we were going to be reading briefs on iPads and computer screens, and, and now it's the norm, and who knows, uh, you know, what different interfaces and file formats and that sort of thing we'll be using in another 20 years. So that, that is a good point, point. Um, and I think that that will be a factor that can be weighed in this whole how much of a distraction is the footnote, you know, how much effort does it take to read it, Yeah, that factors into how they should be used. That's, that's an interesting point. Well, so Sarah, let me ask you, is your philosophy for footnotes, is it different in the second DCA than other Florida DCAs or in federal court, or do you have sort of a uniform approach to when you think footnotes are appropriate?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, know that given their process in the second DCA, it just makes sense to avoid them if at all possible. Um, I, I don't adopt that exact same philosophy in other courts necessarily and there are certainly, you know, extraneous pieces of information that are helpful for context, but not necessarily directly a part of your argument that I think, you know, is proper footnote content that I'll use sometimes. Um, and, and I, I still have done it very exceedingly sparingly or, you know, as they advise. Um, I've, I've done it before, but it is rare. Um, but I, I think that beyond the style, you know, issue, There is also a substantive issue and you have to be careful to make sure that, you know, especially in your initial brief, um, if you're the appellant, that you are really preserving all your arguments because you'll see sometimes someone makes an argument really in a footnote, um, you know, kind of as an aside or furthermore. and, And it's kind of a whole different argument. And we've we've seen problems with that. You know, some opinions will, you know, cite to this having been raised only in a footnote. And the same goes with opinions. You know, we see that in opinions that courts issue, if something's in a footnote, there's a lot of analysis out there that you can find, um, although it is still a case by case consideration, but you know, support for well, maybe that's just dicta. Why is it just in a footnote? The court didn't think it was important enough to put it in the opinion. And I think the same goes for our brief.
1: Yeah, that is definitely true. There is definitely Florida case law. Um, I took a look at that just briefly in preparation for the podcast, and I found uh, Robinson versus State, which is a Florida Supreme Court case from 2018. That definitely suggests that you know putting putting an argument in a footnote may not be enough to raise it or to preserve it. That's definitely something, you know, things that are important enough, to, that, that doesn't belong in a footnote. It's just unsafe.
2: Yeah. And then to the style point, I've also noticed in that in the process, because, you know, that that rule that we have locally does kind of force us to take footnote material and put it up in the text. And I've recognized here and there that when I'm forced to do that, what I realize I've done is just, maybe I didn't have my organization on lock as much as I could have because I think sometimes things get relegated to footnotes, but really they are part of the overall context. It's just that you hadn't yet found the right place for it and and maybe you need to reorganize a little bit. And so that rule has kind of prompted me to actually improve the storytelling in a brief. Um, That's happened to me before where I recognized that that was kind of a crutch maybe. That's
0: a great point. Now Chris what
1: about you do you do you treat footnotes differently in other courts other than the 2nd DCA other Florida courts or federal courts well, uh, when do you think it's appropriate to use a footnote
0: Yeah I mean I, I'm probably a little bit more liberal outside of of the 2nd but in terms of when uh <laughs> I guess I know it when I see it or I know it when I feel it. No, I mean, to a certain extent, certainly asides, if I think there's something that's going to be questionable, uh, but not necessarily argumentative, you know, to argument-based question. uh, An example would be if I'm dealing with a a, uh, a local city or county's code and I cite to it uh, and include a copy of it that I've printed off of, say, municode.com, that I couldn't get on Westlaw, then I might sort of drop a little footnote that says, you know, if certified copies are required, you know, I can, I can obtain them, but here's some cases that rely on municode.com, you know what I mean? Or something like, in other words, if if I'm expecting maybe that somebody might try to raise some tangential argument that would be easily overcame through a motion to supplement or, you know, motion to take judicial notice or something like that, then I'll, I'll put that maybe in a footnote.
1: I sat down and tried to come up with, the times that I think a footnote is appropriate. Um, And I, and I came up with three things and and maybe there's others, but I'm curious what you guys think. Number one is a note to the staff attorneys Mm -hmm. to explain something structural with the brief, especially if I can't, for some reason I can't mirror the, the format of the, of the uh, initial brief and the answer brief, or there's some, there's some tweak to, you know, I want to make sure that staff attorneys understand what is being responded to where I think that's appropriate for a footnote. The second thing is um, if there is some tangential thought that I think is worth uh, the court's time, but I just can't find a way to work it into the text without destroying the flow. And, and I think Sarah's point is well taken that maybe I should try harder, right? Maybe be sure uh, that there's not some way, but, but I, t- I take that as a, as a possible Uh, number two and number three um, to explain some issue with a record site that that may or may not be raised uh, or may or may not be relevant, but I don't want to be sort of accused of hiding later. Like I don't want to spend a lot of time explaining some issue with the record and the text, but I also don't want to be called out for, you know, potentially misrepresenting something. If there's some, something weird about a record site that I just want to make sure if if it comes up, it was real clear about what it was, but I didn't think it was worth explaining. I'll put that into a footnote. So those are kind of the three things that, that I came up with, times I can think of that I use footnotes. And But there's always one big caveat with all of these is that I understand that anything that I put in a footnote, it might not be read by the court. Somebody might miss it. It might not get put into a compilation brief in the second, or a judge might just overlook it. Um, in another court, so any I just make sure that if for some reason the judge doesn't read the footnote, I'm okay with that. If it's something that they absolutely need to read, then it needs to go in the main text. Um, so that, that that's sort of my 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 philosophy. Um, Sarah, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, and and that's usually where you know if I've thought of it, and it's the the footnotes are usually pretty interesting, right, and so. Um, it usually doesn't pass that test for me. (laughs) And so that's where I usually end up trying to integrate it, even if I don't have to, even if I'm not in the second DCA, um, you know, end up trying to integrate it into the text somehow.
1: No, definitely. That that makes sense. Um, Chris, what do you
0: think? I I agree with all three of your points. Uh, I am particularly relieved to hear that you include sort of staff attorney notes (laughs) because I've done that several times and wrestled with, should I be doing this? Is this, should I, or should I not be? But uh I would add two to the list that you just gave. The first one I would add is explaining a potentially technical issue that some, some judges may not need explanation on, but some may not. And you particularly find this relevant, or I find it relevant when I'm, a, I'm appealing something to the circuit court who who may not have a lot of experience in the area of the law that, that I'm appealing in. So I don't want to necessarily put it in the text because it may be belittling, but I want to drop it down because I don't want to assume my reader already knows that. And then the fifth thing, and I think we probably all have had been forced to do this, is when the client insists that something should be in the brief, and you're like, okay, I'll put it in a footnote because I know it may not be read. <laughs> hopefully no clients are listening. No, <laughs> right. no,
1: that's a good point. And I can recall having done that too, where you have something that's really not super relevant, but if the, if the client is insistent upon it being there, um, that, that might be a way to do it without, you know, destroying the flow of your argument. Uh, yeah, it's never a great, it's never a great feeling to be in that position, but I guess that I think that that's a legitimate use. <laughs> You know, when it comes to, you know, how many is too many, I think you, you, Chris, you mentioned it before. I I know when I see it, I I think that that's sort of, um, that's sort of how I feel about footnotes is um, it's just a, it's an over, as far as the number goes, it's just an overall feel for the document and the brief and how many footnotes there are. And if it seems like too many, then you look for ways to pull them out. And I guess it never seems like too few. Certainly I write briefs. Sometimes I have no footnotes. Um, Do you ever do that?
0: I do, and uh, but I, I, I'll back up and say that probably as a general rule is if I hit five footnotes, I'm starting to go. Do I really need this many? <laughs> and I'll by, go back and reevaluate that. So I guess as a general rule of thumb, I would say five is hitting that too too many.
1: Okay, yeah, that's pretty good. I I certainly can't ever remember getting the double digits even on a 50 page brief. So uh, five, five, and I hate to write a 50 page brief. So uh, five sounds pretty pretty, uh, reasonable. Um, Sarah, what, any thoughts on, do you, do you have any such, uh, rules of thumb?
2: No, but that, that sounds about right. That's, you know, where I, I do the same thing, you know, I'll go back and reevaluate and I'll inevitably when I, if I've gotten to that many, I'll probably find one or two that didn't really need to be there.
1: You know, as a part of that overall, you know, final proofing, um, when I, when I set the brief aside and, and hopefully if you have time, set it aside and come back to it a day later, sometimes footnotes that seemed important in the drafting, uh, seem less important when you come back to it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I think we've, we've talked for 25 minutes or so now on footnotes, which, you know, non appellate lawyers would probably think is not possible. But,
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, I could keep going, but we'll, we'll, oh, yeah. we'll stop now. <laughs>
1: Listen, I really appreciate you guys being on the podcast. Uh, again, uh, you guys are kind of regulars, so I, I really appreciate your input and thanks for your time today.
2: Thanks a lot. Great talking to you.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Thank you, Dwayne.
1: Thanks to Sarah Lalu Amin and Chris Donovan for their participation in the podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment now, add it to your contacts, so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. There will be a short season break before episode 41, but the show will be back before you know it. I hope you will continue to download and listen.
0: Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.